I've always wanted a musical introduction. That was perfect. Well, it is a delight in this day of celebration to have a good friend of South Church for many, many years, Dr. Joe Stoll, who pastored in Michigan at Highland Park, also pastored in Ohio and Indiana, was for 18 years president of Moody Bible Institute, and now for the last seven years president of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. To have him here today as a great friend opening up the Word of God to us is a rich blessing. Dr. Stoll has written many books. He served the Lord in many capacities as a leader. But the thing that I appreciate the most about this great man of God is that he's a servant and his passion is Jesus Christ. So he's here today to open up the Word of God to us. Let's give Dr. Stoll a warm South welcome. Thank you so much, Don, and uh, good morning, South Church. It uh, seriously is an honor. It's just not speaker talk. I really mean it in my heart. Uh, that's a great honor for me to be here on this anniversary celebration of 125 amazing years of legacy for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And come all the way from Grand Rapids to tell you that everybody at Cornerstones help, brings their regards for a happy anniversary and celebration. Thinking of Cornerstone, I'm also thankful of driving to the parking lot. I didn't see any like Taylor Wheaton stickers on cars. Which, because then I'd have to tell you, why are you sending your kids to B-level schools? <laughs> or like sending them not to Cornerstone. Is that like child abuse? I'm not sure, but anyway. And in case you don't think they can get into Cornerstone, I can help you. I know people there. So, <laughs> close parentheses. <laughs> I'm a shameless self-promoter, but anyway. But we are very, I'm just very thankful to be here today. Actually, I'm no stranger to your history. Uh, since I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor and was friends with several of your pastors, Malcolm Cronk. Um, I'm not 90, but it's going back. Uh, Howard Sugden. Um, and so I've heard of South Church my whole life in Lansing, formerly South Baptist Church in Lansing. And uh, then when I was first in the ministry, I ended up in some conference work with Howard Sugden and just admired him. And he was kind of somebody I thought, wow, you know, maybe I could grow up and be like him. And so I've known about this church and your marvelous ministry for many years, and that just heightens the honor for me. On a personal note, it's an honor for me to be here because your pastor is a very valued friend. And so I've been tracking the recent history through his life and his ministry. And I just want to tell you, a really good and godly pastor is not an easy thing to find. But God has blessed your church with one of those. And I hope, I know that you're an encouragement to him and you pray for him. And so Don Dennis is a, a pal. In fact, he teaches at our seminary in Grand Rapids. And he's on our board of trustees. So your pastor is my boss. How about that? I try to behave myself when I'm over here. Like. But yet, even more important than that is the Jesus that you have lifted up through all these years. So let's focus our minds on him. I remember asking a counselor, a friend of mine who was a counselor, that was his business, uh, what are the, of all, when all these people come to you with their broken lives and complexities of life, 
what are the core issues that tend to break a life down? And I was actually a pastor at that time, so I thought this will help my preaching because I could preach into these core issues from God's point of view and help with healing. Well, what he said to me on that short list, one of them was a really huge surprise because he said, certainly one of them is broken expectations. I didn't expect him to say that. But as he explained that, it became clear to me that I fully understood why that has a way of disintegrating life on us. Uh, he said, when we come to life with expectations, which we do, and then they're victimized and broken, then we are deeply disappointed. Sometimes if that expectation, breach of expectation is serious enough, we become despondent, we become depressed, we become bitter. And he said those are all the elements for a life that has, has gone south and is not well healed and put together and is very troublesome. So clearly the issues of expectations in our life is no small matter. So I'm not surprised that God is interested in helping us frame our expectations because he loves us. He doesn't want our lives to go in a dumper. And so expectations becomes an important thing for us to think about. And there are a lot of different expectations, but given the text that I'm in this morning, I think there are two that may be relevant to a lot of us. You know, we come into life go to school, high school, college, and think we're going to end up in a really good place. You know, we're going to end up with a great zip code and a great area code, and we're going to end up in a great job, and we're going to end up, you know, living in a great neighborhood, and we're going to just be in a great place, only to find out that, that we end up saying, like, how did I get stuck in a place like this? How did I get stuck in a job like this? How did I get stuck in a family like this? How did I get stuck around people like this? How, how did I get stuck in this body? You look in the mirror, and you, how did I get, or maybe it's broken down in health, and you just then, how did I get stuck in a place like this? And your expectations are shattered, and then all those demons come swarming into your spirit, and life disintegrates. Or maybe you have the expectation that knowing how charming you are, that when people meet you, they will like you and affirm you and applaud you and support you and help you and be tolerant with you and, and lift you up and serve you and <laughs> only to find out that you're stuck with some really lame people in your life. And the worse that becomes, the more disintegrating it becomes to, how did I get stuck with people like this? You get to the place where you agree with the philosopher who said, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. <laughs> so all of that to say is that expectations of place and expectations of people can be very disruptive. Well, what I find interesting is that God actually addresses that for us in Scripture. Uh, through the very real life, not in some ethereal like God from his heavenly tower telling us about, but through the very real life of a person who was stuck in a really bad place with some really lame people. And I would expect in the testimony we're going to read that he would be disheartened and discouraged and we'd hear a little grumbling going on about this and well, quite the opposite, he is actually joyous. And he's on top of it. I'm going, like, how does it happen that somebody can go through that valley of life 
and be ecstatic. So I thought, maybe there's a clue in the text somewhere. Maybe you and I can, can have a clue, not only for that expectation, but for every expectation of life. And sure enough, there is a clue. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to let Paul give us his personal testimony of being stuck in a bad place with some pretty lame people. And we're going to learn from him because we'll uncover the clue that will be a huge help to all of us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul begins, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... How many of you know what has happened to him? Where is the book of Philippians written from? From prison in Rome. He's actually in house arrest in Rome. So here's somebody, would you agree, that's stuck in a pretty, pretty bad place? All right. Now, especially, put that in the context of this is God's specially chosen apostle stunned on the Damascus road by the power and presence of Christ, called to Christ, lifted up later into the heavens for a personal seminar with Christ, sent back to be the global apostle with no restrictions on territory or boundaries, the one with all the apostolic leverage, and with all of that before him, suddenly... His, his broad range of calling and capacity is confined and restricted into this narrow space of life called house arrest in Rome. So he says, I want you to know, brothers, that is what happened to me. And if we can just parenthetically say here that they know that he's in prison. The issue is not what do you know about your problem because you know everything about your problem. You know, when you have a problem in life, you can recite all the details, right? In fact, you'll be driving along and you'll just be reciting them and he'll say to me and then I'll say to him and he'll say to me and I'll say to him. You know, like, like we, have, we know all the details. You're glad to share them with anybody else who comes along. The issue is not do they know, but the nuance here of the Greek word literally means to understand. There's a very important point here in that when life goes south on you, when you find yourself disintegrating with these broken expectations, you need to stop and understand. You know about it. What is God doing here? What is the hand of God in this moment in my life? What is he up to? In, because that's where Paul is going to take us. And so he calls on them not to know the details of his trouble, but to understand what God is doing, which is what we ought to do as well. And so he continues to say that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, I think that's fascinating that he talks about the imperial guard here because in being in house arrest, he would actually have an imperial guard from Rome guarding him in house arrest. So here's this guard, imperial guard from Rome with him. And it'd be interesting to know what some of those conversations might have been like. But I, I get a little hint about what has happened to me has advanced the cause of Christ when I go to the end of the book. And as I told the first service, like, I couldn't wait to get here because it's so, so wonderful. Turn with me to chapter 4. It's kind of surprisingly wonderful, actually. You come to the end in verse 21, and Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Look at this next phrase. This is the wow phrase. 
especially those of Caesar's household. What? How did the gospel get into Caesar's household? Now, Paul doesn't tell us, and there may have been ways, but it seems in the context of the imperial guard, I wonder if this is what unfolded. So let me start by asking you a question. How many of you think the imperial guard has guarded some pretty sleazy characters? Exactly. So I'm just wondering if this imperial guard says to Paul, excuse me, it's a guy like you doing it in a place like this. And Paul goes, don't ask. Do not want to talk about this. I've been called to global ministry. This is the huge bait and switch in my life. Now I'm stuck in this place, totally hindered from carrying out my passion. I do not want to talk about this. Well, I think maybe that's what I would have done. Maybe that's what you would have done. In my mind, that's probably not what Paul did. My guess is Paul told him why he was there, and he was there, if you read the book of Acts, from preaching the resurrection of Christ in the synagogues, making trouble in the synagogues that maybe even bring about an insurrection against Rome, and so he was arrested, and he's in these levels of appeal. Last appeal before his head rolls by Nero in this house arrest, and so I think he would have told the imperial guard, I'm here for preaching the resurrection of Christ. Now, who was guarding the tomb in Jerusalem? The imperial guard. Do you think that was a pretty, like, memorable event for those guards? The answer is yes. By the way, you've got to help me this morning, okay? Like, <laughs> right. Believe me, they're guarding this tomb, and all of a sudden, boom, they're struck as dead men. The stone gets, is rolled away. There's angels flittering around. They kind of come back to life, and the tomb is empty, and count on it. That story went back to the Imperial Guard in Rome. I mean, news travels, right? So think about Paul saying to this Imperial Guard, we're here preaching the resurrection of Christ. The guard goes, well, I heard that thing in John. I heard about that. Tell me more about it. And Paul unfolds the story of the resurrection of Christ and redemption, and the guard accepts Christ. And he goes back on his break, and he tells his buddies, hey, I'm guarding this guy who knows all about that resurrection thing in Jerusalem, and he told me about this Christ, this Messiah. You gotta take my shift. You gotta know about this. And then another one accepts Christ, and then a servant girl accepts Christ, and pretty soon the gospel is in Caesar's household. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Could it be that God restricted his life to give him a brand new mission field, an opportunity he never dreamed of in his life in that really bad place? The answer is yes. God does those kind of things. So I wanted to ask you if it ever crossed your fallen little brain. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> All right, don't take it personally. But you do have a fallen brain. So did it ever cross your mind that just maybe when you think of the bad place you're in, just maybe God has put you there on purpose for a purpose that you never dreamed of. Did that ever cross your mind? Because he does those kinds of things to give you new venues of influence that you would have never had if he had put you in your dream good place 
I just wonder if that ever crossed your mind. When I turned 35, which is ancient history now, I still remember the birthday card I got from my mother-in-law. It had happy birthday on the front. I opened it up. It said, bloom where you're planted. I've never forgotten that. Whatever place I'm in, maybe an opportunity for me to bloom. We'll talk about how that happens in a minute. That stuck in a really bad place, God may have put you there on purpose for a purpose. Well, if the place doesn't get you, then the people will. So the text goes on. Let's keep reading. He says, um, verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now he's talking about Roman believers here. So here he is in Rome. The church in Rome has believers in it, and since he has been courageous enough to be imprisoned, they have also courage begets courage. Now they have courage, and they're going out and proclaiming the gospel, except there's a problem here. He goes on to say, some indeed are preaching Christ from envy and competition, but others from goodwill. The latter, the goodwill people, are doing it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former, those competitive, envious people, are proclaiming Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? I'm praying that God will take them out. No, <laughs> that's what I might be praying at this point, because here are Roman believers, his brothers in Christ, who actually don't like him. Not only don't like him, but hope that their success in the gospel will trouble him and afflict his spirit while he's in prison. I would have expected that Paul, given who he is, uh, that the Roman believers would have come to his aid, would have come, you know, would have a, let's take Paul a meal campaign. Let's, you know, all that, that. I think I would have expected that they would be rallying to support and encourage him. And here he's stuck with this really lame people out of a sense of rivalry and competition, want to outdo him. Now they get to be the big evangelists. They win more people to Christ than Paul. They're the headliners, et cetera, et cetera. And they so don't like him that they hope he feels afflicted by this. So I don't know why they don't like him. We never learn in Scripture that this group that was anti-Paul I often wonder if maybe they're just sick and tired of hearing about Paul, like Paul, Paul, Paul. We go to church every Sunday, and all we hear is a Paul, Paul, Paul. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe they're going like, hey, I've written a few letters too, but nobody's reading my letters in church. You know, how come we always have to read Paul's letters in church or whatever it is? So there's this spirit of com competition and rivalry that for those of us who are sensitive, and I tend to be a thin-skinned, sensitive kind of person, that would bother me that they are so against me and don't like me. And my expectation that people would love me would crumble and make me despondent. So, as I read this text, I thought, you know what? <laughs> At least one good thing is that this whole sense of rivalry and competition between Christians ended at the end of the first century. And so, so totally glad about that, because then we can just keep reading this text and not think about it anymore. 
wrong. Because isn't it interesting how still within our own hearts is this demon of wanting to be on top, wanting to be recognized uh, within a context of a church. Why is he an elder? Look, I could have been a better elder. Why, why are they recognized? Why am not recognized? And between churches, that's the, the death of this thing. Is like between good gospel-preaching churches, did it ever cross our minds that we are called not to compete with each other, but to go arm in arm and compete against the gates of hell, to break them down, bring lost souls out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And we're called to do that together. That's the call. But I have to admit that even in my own spirit, often, I feel this sense of competition. And I could tell you stories, but I thought maybe one would help you understand the angst that I sometimes feel. I was pastoring a church in Indiana, and it was back in, we used to be a few old-timers here, so some of you will remember, when we used to have bus ministries. Anybody remember bus ministries? So churches would buy old buses from the school district, paint them the colors of the church, put the name of the church, drive them through neighborhoods and pick up kids and bring them to Sunday school. Actually, a pretty good idea. So some churches were really pretty competitive about that. Uh, we had this church on the other side of town, preached the same gospel, basically held the same doctrines. They had their, their bus program was so competitive, they'd drive into our church parking lot when the kids got out of their cars. They'd put them in their bus and take them to church. <laughs> Actually, just kidding about that. But it was, it was almost that competitive, seriously. <laughs> In fact, on the side of their bus, get, get a load of this, they had Kokomo's fastest-growing church. Do you think that bothered me? That bothered me. Because if they were the fastest-growing church, they were the best church in town, which meant that our church was not the best church in town. That bothered me. And I remember one Easter Sunday, they wanted to break all attendance records so they could put, maybe so they could put Kokomo's best, best church in town. I don't know, but they wanted. So they decided to get all the kids in town to come because they would have an Easter egg hunt on the lawn. You know, when you get ticked, you get theologically focused. And so I'm saying, like, nice. Take the ultimate moment of redemptive history, the crowning glory of the power of God, the resurrection of the Son of God to give us life, and reduce it to like painted stained eggs underneath bushes with little kids carrying baskets around, finding them. Do you think that bothered me? <laughs> that bothered me. <laughs> and on that same Sunday, to just, you know, exponentially explode the attendance figures. They said, and it will be Fri Friends Sunday, so all the adults will be involved in inviting your friends to church. And the person who invites the most friends gets a prize. I'm going, like, you're giving prizes for routine faithfulness? That kind of bothered me. But what really bothered me was a little tiny town. And there were people in their church who had friends in our church. Well... I remember that Easter Sunday night, I'm before our Sunday evening service, I'm at the drinking fountain, and I just kind of, you ever feel somebody coming, and all of a sudden, you know, and I look up with probably water on my chin, and this lady's like making a beeline for me, and she is intent, 
And she said, she got close and she said, Pastor. Yes. I had no clue what was coming. She said, Pastor, do you know how many they had at Temple Baptist Church this morning? I said, no. She said, they had, and we're a little town, so this is pretty big. They had 1,500 people there this morning. And she said, she said, it's such an irritation because they got that record attendance because some of their people have friends in our church, and they invited our church people to go to their church, and those people should have been in our church and should not have been at that church. She said, that's such an irritation to me. Now, I want you to know I'm normally not this good, okay? But because all of that was bothering me, like clearly it was bothering her, I'd been in this text that week where Paul says, what then? The gospel is preached, and in that I do rejoice in the midst of all this competitiveness. So, so I said to her, wow, are you telling me that this morning in our little town, 1,500 people heard the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I said, isn't that the best thing you've ever heard? I'm telling you, that was a showstopper right there. That was like, <laughs> she going, all right, like. That's where Paul was. All these people against him and irritating him. And in his mind, the, the end game, the gospel is being preached. I rejoice in that. And I, want, I think I have enough time to tell you a story that you will think is fiction. In Atlanta, there is a church, a huge mega church, pastored by Andy Stanley. And when they outgrew their facilities in the heart of Atlanta, they went out to the edge of town to buy a huge piece of property. And in that piece of property, uh, to build their campus and massive parking lots. And Andy says that. You know, it kind of bothered him a little bit that that piece of property was located down the street from this tiny little vineyard church. But he said it was the only property we could find. So they built this huge campus, and pretty soon the parking lots are packed, and there's traffic jams. And so one day he went to his office, and there was a callback slip from the pastor of this little vineyard church. And Andy says, I'm not sure I wanted to call him back. You know, I didn't want to, I thought I'm going to get what's, what for for moving into his territory and the traffic jams and everything. And he says, I did call him back. And the pastor said, oh, Pastor Stanley, thank you for calling. First of all, welcome to the neighborhood. But what I wanted to tell you, Pastor Stanley, was that we have been praying for years that God would reach this part of Atlanta for Christ. And you are the answer to our prayers. <laughs> Is that like fiction? Could it be that somewhere, somebody in this kingdom knows that we go arm in arm against the gates of hell and we rejoice when lost sinners are found and the church succeeds. Oh, wow. And then he said, he said, I notice your parking lots are full. Ours isn't full. If your people want to park in our parking lot, that would be great. We just, just bring them down, take car, you know, shuttle them back. Then he said, I know that you're busy, but if you ever get a Sunday free, would you come and preach at my church? Think about the sheep-stealing moment that creates. I'm going to praise God. Somebody somewhere rejoices that Christ has preached and gets out of this muck, this competitive rivalry that so plagues church world, that so we carry deep in our own hearts. 
So there Paul is, stuck in a bad place with a great attitude, stuck with lame people, rejoicing. How does this happen? How, how does this happen? And maybe the clue emerges, and it does in the text. Let's keep reading, because this is the difference maker in the whole issue of expectations. He says, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, verse 20 is the clue to all that we're talking about today. And I know how we listen to sermons, right? In, out. I'm in, I'm out, right? Is that how we listen to sermons? That's how I listen to sermons. All right, I need a witness here. I can't be up here all by myself on this one. All right. So, so you just got to get in because this is it. This is the moment on how we turn expectations into joy, broken expectations into joy. Verse 20, as it is, he writes, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul had one pressing expectation, and that was that wherever he was or whoever he was with, he would find an opportunity to magnify Christ, to make Christ large, to take this invisible Jesus that dwelt deep inside of him and make him visible, that in moments in a bad place, in moments with lame people, he would show the love, the mercy, the confidence, the courage, the justice, the righteousness that is so core to who Jesus is, that he would make Jesus large. And how many of you think he did that in prison? Of course he did. How many of you think you being stuck in a really bad place, you could take opportunities to magnify Christ? Of course you can. And with these lame people, Christ was being preached and magnified. He rejoiced in that. This is the whole clue to how he could make it through this, this broken expectation jungle of his life to make Jesus large in every situation, whoever he was with. When I was a kid, um, they used to sell tobacco in cans. And it was Prince Albert was one of the uh, products, Prince Albert in a can. So in my wasted youth, one of the things my friends and I would do, we'd call the local drugstore and say, hello, hello. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? Well, actually, we do. Let him out. Boom, we'd hang up the phone. <laughs> so, do you have Jesus in your heart? Let him out. Let the invisible Jesus out, wherever you are, whoever you are with. Show people what he is like. Respond in his likeness. Act in his likeness. Think in his likeness. Let that chart the course for you through being in tough places with tough people. If that is your one expectation, that you will not be ashamed, but in every way Christ will be magnified through you, then your expectation is fulfilled.
and you are fulfilled. The thing I love about this is that broken expectations are what people do to us. We are victims of broken expectations. This is one, maybe the only expectation that I can totally control. Nobody can take the control lever from me because wherever I am, whoever I'm with, I can choose to magnify Christ. Expectation fulfilled. My heart is fulfilled. That was the clue. And that's exactly why he said that familiar phrase, for me to live is Christ. Wherever he was or whoever he was with. It's not always easy. Um, I, as I thought through this text, my mind went back to that little church in Kokomo, Indiana. And I was asked to speak uh, at a conference in Grand Rapids, interestingly enough, at Cornerstone. And so I was pretty excited about the opportunity to go speak at this conference. I called the travel agent, and I said, hey, does any planes fly from Kokomo to Grand Rapids? And they said, actually, there's a little commuter line, starts in Indianapolis, stops in Kokomo, stops in South Bend, and finishes in Grand Rapids. And I said, great, I need to be there. The meeting starts at 11. I need to be there by 10. He said, we can get you in before 10. I said, sign me up. So he's writing out the ticket. And then he says, by the way, you need to know these are like little tiny commuter planes, not real sophisticated, so if the weather's bad, sometimes they can't land. And I'm the eternal optimist, so didn't phase me. Sign me up. Now, I remember getting in the car that morning, heading off to what we affectionately call the Grand Rapid, or uh, the Kokomo International Airport, and as I, was, I knew that I saw that the cloud layer was pretty low, really didn't even think about it, got there, got my bag, my ticket, started walking into the Kokomo International Airport, and I need to tell you that the ticket taker, the baggage guy, and the air traffic controller are all the same person, okay? <laughs> Get the picture. So I hand him my ticket, and I hand him my bag, and... <laughs> Uh, he starts doing the paperwork, and he says, by the way, I just need you to know that the cloud level is really low. This is not great weather. We may not be able to land the plane. So I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And I said, a little angsty. You know, at airline counters, how all of a sudden you get the bad news? And so, I said, so I explained to him why that plane had to land. Like, if that plane doesn't land, I don't get to Grand Rapids, and I've got to be there at 11. I'm speaking to 1,000 people at 11 o'clock. You've got to get this plane down. And then before my very eyes, you could, I'll never forget, he morphed into the air traffic controller. Wow. And he starts talking to the guy on the plane, the pilot. And the, I hear the pilot say, I'm not sure we can get it down. I'm telling him, I'm talking to him now. I'm going like, tell the pilot. Tell him my story. He's got to get this plane down. And I, I hear the engines get loud. I'm looking for the wheels to break the clouds, and it never, the engines get louder and louder and softer and softer. And I hear the pilot say, well, try it one more time. Now I'm all over the air traffic controller baggage ticket guy. I'm saying, hey, tell him he has Finally, he goes, hey, hey, the people on that plane have to live. I said, I don't care. Get that plane down. <laughs> So I'm all over him. And then I heard the engines get louder and louder, and I heard the engines get soft, and I heard the pilot say, we're on our way to South Bend. Well, I just like, well, what am I going to do? Like, they tell him to try it one more time. Like, and he said to me, you're a minister, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> the travel guide put Reverend Joseph M. Stoll on the ticket. And I felt so ashamed, actually. 
And he gave me my ticket back, gave me my bag back. He said, God will take care of you. And so I was walking out of the airport, and then I remembered that about three weeks before, a guy in, my, in the church I pastored said to me, hey, I, I fly as a hobby. I've got a plane at the airport. If you ever need to go anyplace, uh, just let me know. Well, I woke the guy up. Hey, I told him my sad story. He said, I'll meet you at Hangar 9 in 20 minutes. And I'm going, whoa, look what God has done for me. You know, thank you, Jesus. And I start walking out of the airport. I have to tell you that I caught this ticket taker baggage air traffic control guy out of the corner of my eye. And I was so ashamed. Kind of like maybe what Paul says, that in nothing I will be ashamed, but now as always Christ will be magnified through me. Because I had missed such a major opportunity to magnify Christ. I mean, just think if I had gone to him and he said, you know, we're not sure we can get the plane down. And if I went, whoa, that could be a problem, but... But I have to tell you that I've been walking with Jesus for a lot of years in my life, and my life is in his hands. And sometimes he has purposes that kind of surprise me and that the disappointments are sometimes his appointments. And so I'm just kind of trusting that he takes care of me now. But do your best to get the plane down. I think if I had said that, what an opportunity now to circle past the desk again. Say, by the way, remember when I told you that my life is kind of in Jesus' hands? I just want to tell you what just happened and to be able to magnify Christ. But I missed that opportunity because that morning I woke up with one eager expectation and that was to get to Grand Rapids. Think how different that day would have been if that morning I had gotten up, maybe even fallen to my knees and prayed, Lord, today, wherever I am, or whoever I'm with, help me to magnify you. Think how different that day would have been. Think how different your day will be if every day you say, wherever I am, whoever I'm with, I will seek to magnify you. If that's your expectation, your life will be fulfilled. As I was driving over this morning, thinking about this anniversary celebration, I thought the reason we're here today celebrating this anniversary with such a prosperous ministry is because for 125 years, this church has sought to magnify the name of Christ and to lift him up. And while that's the legacy of your church, My prayer was then that that would be the legacy of your life. That wherever you are, or whoever you're with, you'll take the opportunity to magnify Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul's testimony here and its impact on our own lives and how we see our lives. And we pray that we will discard all the expectations of life that disappoint us and embrace this one eager expectation to magnify you wherever we are and whoever we're with. Give us the ability and the Spirit's leadership in our lives to do that well, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.